Chapter Two of David Wark Griffith A Brief Sketch of His Career by Robert Edgar Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two Lawrence Griffith, Actor. At the tremendously important age of six years, when most boys are planning to be circus riders or to own an elephant as large as Jumbo, to drive a team of reindeers or own a candy store, D.W. Griffith determined to be a writer. It was my first and last ambition, he declares, until fate guided my footsteps into the motion picture studio. His father's sword and its early influence, his father's noble career, his many wounds, he was almost shot to pieces, imparted a martial trend to the boy's character. But there was no war at hand, and little prospect of an impending one. Hence, the scholarly atmosphere of his home absorbed the desire for mortal combat and became responsible for his inclination to become a great man of letters. Then, too, General Griffith had but a few months before answered the last great call, and the sword and sheath that had been a constant inspiration had been packed away in a bed of faded flowers, never again to demonstrate the force of arms. As soon as he was big enough, the youthful David began a personally conducted tour of life. In the autumn of 1898, he went to Louisville and secured a job as reporter for the Courier-Journal. He did not meet Marse Henry Watterson then, although many times he tried to do something to merit the attention of the great editor. He was put to work writing notes about theatrical matters. This position together with a night police assignment and a general search for news, directed his ambitions toward becoming a dramatist. I received emphasis for that ambition, he says, on seeing a theatrical performance for the first time. In it was Pete Baker, who sang America's National Game. Then I saw Julia Marlowe and Robert Tabor in Romola. That settled everything. I was to be a great dramatist. First it was necessary to secure some reliable advice, so I called on the manager of the Meffert Stock Company, then playing at Masonic Temple, and unfolded to him my scheme of life. He approved it thoroughly and solemnly, but he explained to me that no man ever could write a good play unless he became an actor. He cited Shakespeare and Moliere, Dion Beauchalt, and Augustus Thomas, and as he was an authority, I accepted his advice, and then and there broke a universal time-honored rule in our family by becoming an actor. Partly to shield his mother and brothers and sisters, and partly because he felt that the name David was not to be compared to those of Edwin, Dion, Melbourne, Augustus, and others equally fantastic, he adopted the Christian name of Lawrence. 
the presence in louisville of thomas coffin cook actor and stage director gave griffith his first opportunity to trod the boards mr cook was at the same time producing the district school for a local charity and griffith applied to him for a part without any reflection on either the appearance or mental equipment of the youthful aspirant to footlight honors he was assigned the role of the dunce griffith's delight knew no bounds had he been cast for the hind legs of a chimpanzee he would have been just as happy as an understudy who had been afforded his first opportunity to play the star part whether it was because he had so completely absorbed the character in hand or whether the stage manager had an uncanny insight into his fitness for the part lawrence griffith went down in ignominious defeat in the reading of his one and only line over and over again he had memorized it the breeze from the lake blows chilly tonight either the sudden change from david to lawrence or the tightening influence of the adhesive grease paint caused him to blurt out in sonorous tones the lake from the breeze blows chilly tonight but fortune had smiled his sweetest smile on those who blunder innocently her messenger in this instance was adolphe lestina the heavy man of the meffert stock company who happened to be in the audience the afternoon the district school was presented and who saw in the young actor's blunder only the fine physique of the man who had committed it whose finely attuned ear heard in the awkwardly read speech only the beautiful tones back of it lestina whose genius and intellectual powers while truly great were secondary to his good breeding and human sympathy immediately sought griffith to congratulate him on his excellent voice and encouraged him in any way he could don't let a mistake worry you admonished lestina you'll make your mark in the world and i'm going to live to see it when a few weeks later lawrence griffith was accepted as a member of the meffert stock company Lestina took him into his own dressing-room and personally looked after his welfare, taught him the art of make-up, and in various ways helped him to achieve his histrionic honors. Less than a score of years have passed since then, and the actor who placed the hand of encouragement on the shoulder of young Lawrence is now a player in the companies of David War Griffith in whose epochal production hearts of the world he enacted the role of the old french grandfather the first play in which griffith appeared with the meffert company was the lights o london in which he was given the part of old man marks his associate players at the time included in addition to adolph lestina anne mcgregor arthur livingston kate tonacray Edmund Day, who later wrote The Roundup, Oscar Eagle, 
stage director and leading man, and Esther Lyons, leading woman. Griffith remained with the Meffert Stock Company throughout its season at Masonic Temple, but his salary was so small he was compelled to seek work on the side, as he terms it. Therefore, the townspeople who patronize Stewart's dry goods store might have observed that the regular elevator boy never was on duty Wednesday and Saturday afternoons. Had they cared to investigate these semi-weekly disappearances, they might have discovered an energetic youth making a wild dash from the employee's exit of the Stewart store through the most direct highways leading to the stage door of the Masonic Temple. And the time would have been about 1.30 p.m., or just 45 minutes before the curtain was due to ascend on the matinee performance. Employers have a cruel way of demanding full and complete attendance on the part of their workers which may or may not have been responsible for Lawrence Griffith's change of employment from Stewart's Dry Goods Emporium to Flexner's Stationery Store. In any event, the distance from the latter place to the stage entrance did not require so much time to cover, and the double employment was manipulated with less difficulty thereafter. The exigencies of the stake seldom permit of permanent residence, and soon Larry Griffith found himself a member of the ranks of the strolling players, whose travels familiarized him with the precise definition of barnstorming, sticks, tanks, wild goose, one-nighters, and eats. Although the latter was rendered less familiar by its infrequency and the considerable distances between its appearance. What the road meant to Larry Griffith is perhaps best recounted by himself. My first engagement was with John Griffith. The identical name caused me to change my former nom de plume as well as my family name. I greatly resented the relinquishing of my entire identity, and so we compromised by the reinstatement of my proper Christian name and the adoption of another surname to prevent the overcrowding of the profession with too many Griffiths. Hence, as an actor with John Griffith's company, I was programmed as David Brankton, thereby managing to keep a hold on at least one founder of the American Griffiths. Among other plays in the repertory of the John Griffith troupe was the drama of Faust. As near as I got to being a character in this play was a member of a quartet singing off stage. But John Griffith was not always to keep my light under a bushel. In a few months, I obtained another engagement, this time with Ada Gray's traveling company on her farewell tour. Here I was permitted to play a wide range of parts, among them that of the clergyman in Trilby and Francis Lewison in East Lynn. I wasn't twenty then, and I was paid the magnificent salary of eight dollars a week, and cakes. 
the cakes being vernacular for meals. Reese Prosser, the minstrel tenor, was a member of this aggregation and used to sing songs between the acts. Following this engagement, I appeared with the Memphis Stock Company on tour, playing the part of the Italian in The Three Musketeers, which I committed to memory in three days' notice. Of course, there were other parts, but I have forgotten them. Later I joined Walker Whiteside on his tour through Iowa, which probably accounts for my lack of sympathy with Iowa ideas. It isn't all so long ago, yet I played one season with Helen Ware before she was discovered, and then with, and then with J. P. Dodson as Dumapre to his Richelieu, and was given a good notice by Alan Dale. This confirmed my suspicion that I was quite a good actor, which opinion must have been shared by Mr. Dodson, for he increased my salary. Then came a season with Nance O'Neill and Shakespeare and Ibsen in Boston. The reviewers gave me splendid praise, but of course Shakespeare and Ibsen couldn't be adversely criticized in Boston. And reviewers are not always over-perceptive. There was a week when I played with Miss O'Neill and McKee Rankin at Mason Opera House in Los Angeles. My part was that of Magda's preacher lover. But when Rankin was taken ill on the opening night, I was thrown into his part of the father. I stuffed out my clothes and went through the performance with no change of name on the program. The next morning's papers had the most eulogistic reviews of Mr. Rankin's thoroughly artistic acting and the world looked very brilliant to me that day. By this time, Lawrence Griffith was appearing on the programs again, the David Brangton having served its purpose in maintaining the dignity and fame of John Griffith. An old program of the Mason Opera House, dated January 29, 1906, reads... America's greatest tragedian, Miss Nance O'Neill, in Elizabeth a Tragedy in Five Acts, by Paola Glacometti. Down the list of characters is found Sir Francis Drake, played by Mr. Lawrence Griffith. More information on the stage career of the then Lawrence Griffith might be told were Griffith himself not penalized by modesty. However many testimonials at hand vouch for his unquestioned ability. The actors who knew him when he was a talky agree that his work was exceptionally clever. Most of them qualify it by the term original which in the parlance of the stage means that an actor has brains. James Neal, who used to be a dramatic stock king in Illinois, in those days when Chicago was still spoken of as a western city, once employed Griffith. 
It was in one of the Neil stock companies in that period known as the Neil Lehambra stock. On a visit to this particular company, Mr. Neil discovered a noticeably good Abraham Lincoln in the cast of The Ensign. It had been the custom not to give Lincoln any lines to speak, it being thought that the public would resent any attempt to parade Lincoln as far as really acting on the stage for public entertainment at a price. Therefore the part was kept strictly in pantomime. So pronounced was the acting of Lincoln that Mr. Neal asked his stage director, Oscar Eagle, about the young actor, and he told him he was a rather bright young fellow named Griffith. What salary are we paying him? asked Neil. Fifteen dollars, replied Eagle. Make it eighteen, instructed the proprietor. Years after, when Griffith's name had become a household word throughout the width and breadth of the land, his former employer met him. That was a pretty poor salary we paid you, he apologized. It was a very good salary, Griffith assured him, for I needed it tremendously, and it was much more than I was worth then. End of chapter 2